The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. In this world, in our life, we will undergo many, many, many tests. There's a few reasons for tests. Uh, One reason for a test is to see what you have learned, how you have grown, how you have developed. But another reason for a test is to see if you're ready to go to the next level, if you're qualified to move on. So let me give you a few examples. We have academic tests. If you're a student, you have tests. A lot of times you have finals. And when you have a final exam, it's given to you to see what you have learned, to see what you have developed. But it's also to examine you and see if you're ready to move on to the next grade level, if you're ready to move on in that subject matter. There are athletic tests. If you want to play high school sports or college sports or sometimes NFL or pro sports or even sometimes youth sports, there's tryouts in which they want to see what are your capabilities, what are you able to do, how well have you learned the game. Are you ready to go to the next level? Are you ready to take the next step? Dating is even a test. Dating is a test in which you are in a trial period, in which you are seeing, is this a person that I like, that I care for? How have they developed as a person? And eventually, are we ready to take that next step? One of the most rigorous tests I ever took personally was a theological test when I was pursuing ordination, and they would grill and examine me in areas of Bible and theology and sacraments and church history and things like that. My first time through, I didn't pass some of the tests, and I wasn't ready. I wasn't qualified. So I had to go back and take the tests over again. But what you see is when we are given tests, it's supposed to see how have we developed as a person, whether it be intellectually, athletically, character-wise, theologically, and are we ready to move forward to the next stage? We are looking at the life of Joseph, and Joseph is getting ready to test his brothers. And so let me ask you, if you have been hurt by someone in your past, whether they've hurt you once or hurt you time and time again, whether it be a close friend or a family member, many times you have to sort of distance yourself. You you need to forgive them as God calls you, but you distance yourself to protect yourself. But how do you know when it's time to re-engage? How do you know when you can trust them again with your heart? That's the dilemma that Joseph is faced with. 20 years prior, his brothers had betrayed him, sold him into slavery. They hated him. They treated him harshly because he was his father's favorite son. And now they have been reunited. They have come down to Egypt before Joseph. And they don't know that it's Joseph, but Joseph has put him through several tests. The first test he sent them through was when he sent the brothers back and kept Simeon, one of their brothers, as collateral. He sent them away testing them to see if they would indeed return with Benjamin, the youngest son, to bring Simeon out of prison. It took a long time. It took until they ran out of food. And finally, Jacob sent Benjamin down. The second test that Joseph gave to his brothers was when they came back on that second journey, they were afraid. But Joseph poured out upon them grace upon grace upon grace, paying for their food, treating them as special honored guests, throwing them a great banquet, and then he tests them in the banquet by giving to Benjamin, their youngest, the favorite son, five times the amount of food he gave to the others. And yet we read in that passage from last week at the very end, it says they drank 
and were merry with him, with Benjamin. And so they seem to be passing these tests. And Joseph today gives the third test, the final test, the test of the silver cup to see if he can reconcile with his brothers, if he can once again give his heart to his brothers. I think that Joseph has already forgiven them, but he has seen if he can re-engage into a loving relationship with them. And so he gives them this third and final test, the test of the silver cup. Before we dig in, let's pray. Lord God, as we look at Genesis 44, and we see how you have worked in these brothers' lives, As we see how you've worked in Joseph's life, we pray that you would work in our life. Lord, as we sang this morning, we need you. Every hour, we need you. Every hour, every moment, we need you, God. We're so prone to wander, so prone towards sin, so prone to get distracted. We need you every hour, including this hour. So God, help us as we look at your holy, inerrant word. May it transform us. May it lead us in paths of righteousness for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would please turn to Genesis chapter 44. It's page 38 in the Red Bible, and it is page 75 in the children's Bible. So Joseph continues with this third test, a test of the silver cup. It happens the day after Joseph lavishes all this grace upon his brothers. They come down from Egypt. As we mentioned, he throws them this great banquet. They wake up the next morning, and that's where we pick up the story. So Genesis 44, verse 1. Then he, Joseph, commanded the steward of his house Fill the man's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, who's Benjamin, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up. Follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. Now, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you might be uncomfortable with verse 5. I know I was uncomfortable when I first read it. Joseph tells his steward to go to his brothers and say to them, don't you know this is the cup from which my Lord drinks? The cup from which he practices divination. Divination is kind of a, 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 a communication with false gods and it is strictly forbidden in scripture. And so why does Joseph say this? Well, in Egypt, the master's cup, the master's silver cup would have been his medium for interacting with these false gods. They would fill it up with water, whatever it might be, and then they would pour in a little bit of oil, and then they would look at the oil and the shape that it would make, and they would try to take some sort of interpretation from God based on the shape of the oil. But I'm certain, even as Joseph says this, that Joseph does not 
practice divination. I know it's, it's hard to say that, but we see that clearly throughout Joseph's life. If you remember, Joseph is in prison, and the chief cupbearer and the chief baker are thrown into prison, and they are distraught because they do not know the interpretation to dreams that they just had. Joseph comes to them in Genesis 40, and Joseph says to them, do not interpretations belong to God. He knows where truth comes from, He knows where revelation comes from, not from a cup of water with oil, but from God. The next chapter, Pharaoh has a dream. And Pharaoh comes to Joseph and he says, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And then Joseph corrects the Pharaoh. He says, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph knew that revelation came from God, not from a cup. And so what is Joseph doing here? Well, Joseph is continuing to conceal his identity. He's not yet ready to reveal it. He's still testing his brothers, and so he's carrying on as if he was an Egyptian. He's carrying on, putting on this front to test his brothers, to see if they're ready to re-engage in relationship. We'll see later he refers to divination again, and there is another reason why he does that, and we'll look at it then. And so the brothers respond, verse 7. They respond to the servant. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouth of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. Now this is a hasty overreaction. How would they know that all of their other brothers are innocent? And yet this is their claim. We are righteous. We are good. We are innocent. It is a drastic and foolish and overconfident response. Now the steward knows that the cup has been planted in Benjamin's sack. And so the steward knows Joseph's plan and he backs off the consequences. If you notice, it continues, verse 10. He, the steward, said, Let it be as you say, He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. And so instead of the one found with the cup dying and the rest being servants, the steward said, If you're found with the cup, you shall be Joseph's servant. And the rest of you shall go free. You're innocent, okay? And that's important as we move forward in the, sto- in the story. Verse 11. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground. And each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. You can imagine the scene, couldn't you? The steward goes looking through their sacks. First, Reuben. Dig, 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 nothing. Then Simeon, dig, 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 nothing. They're standing there watching him do this. Then Levi, then Judah, nothing. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, nothing. They must have been so confident, but then at last he comes to Benjamin's sack. Dig, 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 dig. Reaches in, pulls something out. And as the sun hits off of that silver cup, the men's righteousness is crushed. Their self-confidence is crushed. Their hearts sink. This is the test 
for the brothers. The test that has been given by God through just Joseph to transform their hearts, but also to prove their transformation to Joseph and to prove their transformation to themselves. You see, God uses ordinary means, things like a silver cup, things like an older brother to test us, to put us through trials, not only to work transformation in us, but to prove the transformation of God that he has done. Let me give you an example. Right now, Trish and I are going through what I would call a test, a trial. All of us are to one degree or another in some way, shape, or form. For us, we're raising four children and we love our children. They are amazing children. But there is one child in particular at this stage in life that is difficult. And uh, we'll just call this child Pat. Keep it gender neutral so you won't know who it is, okay? If you remember from Saturday Night Live. Anyways. So Pat just loves to push the boundaries, okay? And so we'll say, you know, hey, don't take food into that area. And Pat will just eat the food, look at us. And then we'll put one toe in and then move it to half a foot. And then they're straddling it. And we're like, don't go in there. Finally, they'll go in. When Pat gets disciplined for disobeying, just goes crazy. Pat goes crazy. Trish is laughing because she knows it's true. I mean, just sort of like demon possession crazy, you know, like screaming, (laughs) falling on the ground, flailing, and just thinking, man, we have to rebaptize this child. Like, it's just... And And then my favorite part is when Trish and I are sharing our hearts with people and saying, this is really hard, pray for us. They'll say, you know what? Enjoy this stage of life. You know... They grow up so quick. And I just think, you know, I don't want to be selfish, so why don't you enjoy this stage of life for me? And then you can return this child in a few years. But, you know, when you, maybe you can relate to that. Whether you have children or whether there's other stresses in your life, stress at work, stress in your finances, stress in your family, whatever it might be. And I don't know about you, but I look at these situations and Very often, I don't see this as a test from God. Very often, I don't see this as a trial that God has put in my life by his grace. Not to harm me, not to hurt me, but by his grace because he loves me and cares for me. You see, through this test, through this trial that God has put in Trish and I's life, God is doing a good work in our hearts. First and foremost, God is showing us how much he loves us. You know, as rebellious as this child is, as hard as this child is to love, I still love this child, and yet... Before God, I am his child, and I am so much more rebellious. I so much more want to tiptoe the line. And yet he still pours out his love and grace upon me. But also, God is exposing my sin. He sees what happens when I am put through this test, put through this trial. How do I respond? What is in the depth of my heart? You know, it is so easy to act nice and lovely when you come to church, isn't it? Everyone's like, you have perfect kids. I'm like, in public, they're really good. In private, it's a different story. You know, it's good to be, it's easy to be a good parent at church, isn't it? To be a good spouse. But be cl- behind closed doors, when friction happens, when trials and tests come, God is testing you out of his loving grace for you to expose your sin, lead you to righteousness, but also to remind you that he loves you no matter what you do. And so God puts this test 
in the lives of the brother, exposing to them their desperate need for God, their desperate need for transformation, but also proving to themselves, as we will see, that God has started a good work in them. And so that's the test, the test of the silver cup. Now let's look at the brother's response. Verse 13. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Now this may not seem like a lot to you, but this is a very encouraging response from the brothers. 22 years earlier, when Jacob's other favorite son was, was going to be taken away, the brothers didn't care that much. The father tore his robe. He was sad. He was dismayed. He was grieved. And the brothers were like, it's too bad. But now they tear their clothes. Now they go back to Egypt. They go back to the city. They go back to Joseph to plead for mercy. See, the brothers had a perfect out, right? For all they know, Benjamin stole the cup. Whether they knew it or not, I don't know. But the thing is, they had an out. They could go back to their father and say, listen, Benjamin did the crime. Now he's paying the time. It wasn't my fault. He did this, not me. But the brothers stick by Benjamin. They support Benjamin. They go to plead for mercy on behalf of Benjamin. And this is a far transformation from where they were 22 years earlier. It goes on and Joseph speaks. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? There it is again. What is is Joseph doing? What is he saying? Well, here's, here's what I think Joseph is doing. Joseph is saying, would you not, did you not know that I would know? Did you not know that I would know that my cup was gone? Did you not know that I would know where you're at? Did you not know that I know everything about you, that I can... That I know all of your sin. Did you not know that I know that? It's kind of like, you know, when the kids are in trouble and you're a parent and you go up to them and you say, I know what you did, but I just want to hear it from you, right? And you're saying, I want to hear. Joseph knew what they had done. Joseph knew it not by divination, but by experience. He was the one who was betrayed. And he's drawing out of them a confession, drawing out of them repentance over their sin. Joseph, once again, is giving them an out. He's saying, you can go. Joseph must have been encouraged by the response, but the response goes further. Judah steps up as the leader of this family. He's not the oldest son who would normally be the leader, but Judah steps up as the new leader of the family. And Judah takes their commitment and loyalty to their brother to a whole new level. After tearing their clothes and begging for mercy, Judah comes to Joseph. Verse 16. Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, Go up in peace to your father. Do you see it? He's giving them a chance again. This is the perfect opportunity. The man second in line to Pharaoh said, we're innocent, we can go. Only Benjamin is guilty. They, you know, when, when Joseph disappeared, they had to make up this big story. He was torn to pieces. But now they could go with a clear conscience. 
Verse 18, then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. Judah asked for a private audience. I don't know if they went to another room or if he just spoke quietly in his ear, but here we see one of the most beautiful speeches in all of scripture. Verse 19, my Lord asked his servant, saying, have you a father or a brother? He's recalling the story. Verse 20, and when, and we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead. It's the first time that he said that. Before they said, my brother's no more. Now they're saying, my brother Joseph is dead. And he alone, Benjamin, is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, We told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. This is kind of the first time that Joseph is getting the the behind-the-scenes look at what happened when he was sold into slavery. My guess is Joseph had wondered, why has my father not come after me? Why has he not come to seek me, to find me? And here he finds out that his father thought that he was dead. His father thought that he had been torn to pieces by a wild animal. Verse 32. For your servants became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. And then verse 33 is the key to the story, so listen closely. Now, therefore, this is Judah speaking, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Do you remember the story of Judah? Do you remember where Judah has been, what Judah has done? Back in Genesis 37, when Joseph was in the pit, when they were still deciding what to do with him, Judah said, let's make some money off this guy. He said, let's make a deal. Judah came to his brothers and he said, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? We can't make any money on that. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. 
In Genesis 38, the next chapter, Judah was the one who ran away from the people of God, from the family of God, and indulged in a sinful pagan lifestyle. He was so wicked that he raised wicked sons, two of the three God killed because of their extreme wickedness. When his wife died, Judah went to comfort himself by sleeping with a prostitute. Later, he finds out it's his daughter-in-law, Tamar. He impregnates her, wants to kill her, but then finds out that he was the one who impregnated her. It's a crazy, messed up story. This is the Judah that now comes. The Judah who was so selfish now comes selflessly, sacrificially. This is the Judah who has been transformed by the love and grace of God. Joseph could see this. Joseph could see Judah's transformation. His test had revealed what God had done in Judah's heart. And then we see Joseph's response in 45 verse 1. I'll just read part of it. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried. Joseph was overwhelmed. The Judah who sold his own brother into slavery 20 years earlier was now trying to sell himself into slavery to let his brother go free. Something drastic happened to Judah. Something amazing happened to Judah. Judah had been transformed by the love and grace of God. Judah had been given a second lease on life by God so that now he could give a second lease on life to Benjamin. He says again, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. This is the first example we see in all the scripture of one man willing to give his life for another. Theologians have a big fancy name for it. It's called penal substitutionary atonement. Penal means that someone is liable to punishment. Substitutionary means it's a substitute, it's in place of. Atonement means there is satisfaction or reimbursement for the wrong that has been committed. And so we see here there is a penalty towards Benjamin, which is slavery. The substitution, Judah offers himself on the place of Benjamin. And the atonement is that Judah is going to pay off the debt of Benjamin by being a slave for the rest of his life. You know, Judah may be the first case of voluntary penal substitutionary atonement, but he is not the last case and he is not the greatest case. In the Old Testament, we see this tradition continue on. There is a celebration called the celebration of Yom Kippur, also known as the Day of Atonement. And it's instituted by God in which the people would place their sins onto an animal sacrifice and the animal would die in their place. They knew that their sins deserved death and the animal would die in their place. It was a life given for a life. And this was a penal substitutionary atonement. But it was just a shadow of the greater atonement that was to come. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6, it talks about this great atonement that is to come. It says, but he, talking about the future Messiah, the future Christ, but he was wounded for our transgressions, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Second Corinthians 
for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This penal substitutionary atonement, this phrase, this reality is central to Christianity. Wayne Grudem, the theologian, wrote a systematic theology book, and this is what he has to say about penal substitutionary atonement. He says, The view of Christ's death presented here has frequently been called the theory of penal substitution. Christ's death was penal in that he bore a penalty when he died. His death was also a substitution in that it was a substitute for us when he died. This view of the atonement is sometimes called the theory of vicarious atonement. A vicar is someone who stands in the place of another, who represents another. Christ's death was therefore vicarious because he stood in our place and represented us. As our representative, he took the penalty that we deserve. Judah was willing to substitute himself for Benjamin, to take on Benjamin's penalty and to atone for his sin. He was willing to do it, but he didn't have to. But we have a God. We have a Christ who is not only willing to take on our penalty for sin, but actually did it at the cross. You know, I said it last week. I'll say it again. You are God's Benjamin. You are the one that God has come to rescue, to set free. Christ has bore the penalty for our sin. He has become our substitute. He has atoned for our sin that we could go free. We are liable to punishment because of our sin. That is the penalty. The penalty is death, but Christ has substituted himself, dying on our behalf, atoning for our sin, not in part, but the whole, that we could be reconciled to God. Let me end with this story. There's a school, story of a school in the mountains of Virginia. I'm guessing this took place quite a while ago. You'll understand why when I share it. Couldn't happen today. There was a school, and the students there were very rebellious, very difficult, very hard. And many teachers had offered their resignation. And so they kind of were just filing through teachers. Finally, a young man comes, and he said, I'd like to give it a shot. And the man who was hiring warned him about how difficult the school was. And he says, you know, I want to take the risk. Let me try. And so the teacher comes in first day. He says, good morning. We have come to conduct school. The students yelled back sarcastically, good morning. The teacher said, now I want a good school, but I confess I don't know how unless you help me. So you tell me what rules we should have and I'll write them down. And so he started writing down these rules. One student yelled out, no stealing, great. Another one, on time, great. And they went through and they made these lists of rules. And once they were done, the teacher said, you know, rules are great, but unless we have some sort of penalty for breaking these rules, they really do us no good. And so what do you all think should be the penalty attached to someone who breaks these rules? The students yelled out, we should beat them across the back 10 times without his coat on. That's why this couldn't happen today, okay? We should beat him across the back 10 times without his coat on. The teacher thought that was too severe of a punishment, and so he was trying to talk them out of it, but they were insistent. Whoever breaks this rule, these rules, they should be hit on the back ten times without their coat on. Finally, 
he agreed to it. A few, few days later, one of the big guys in the class, Big Tom, had discovered that his lunch was stolen. Well, they searched out to find out who had stolen his lunch, and they finally found out that it was this young little boy named Jim. The next morning, the teacher announced to the class that they had found out who had stolen the lunch, and they announced that Jim was going to now have to endure the consequences for his disobedience. And he calls Jim to come on up. And Jim comes up, and he is scared. And he says, teacher, you can lick me as hard as you like, but please don't make me take off my coat. The teacher responded saying, listen, Jim, you made up the rules. You made up the punishment. And so Jim started to take off his coat. And as he took off his coat, they saw that Jim had no coat on. He, just, he had no shirt on. He just had pants and suspenders, but he had no shirt underneath his coat. And the teacher said, why don't you have a shirt on? And he said, well, my father has passed away. We don't have a lot of money. I only have one shirt. And today was the day that my mom was going to wash it. So I just wore my brother's coat. At this, the classroom was moved, and the large boy, big Tom, whose lunch had been stolen, got up, and he went to the teacher, and he said, can I take his punishment? The teacher turned to the class. The class agreed, and as he was hitting Tom, the rod broke after five strikes. The teacher turned to the class, they were crying, not because Big Jim was being hit, but because they saw the response of Tom. Tom came up, little Tom, put his arms around Jim, and he says, I love you. I'm so sorry. I love you till I'll die for taking my licking for me. I'll love you forever. You know, in the scriptures, we read of when Christ approaches the cross that he is scourged. What does it mean that he is scourged? It means that he was taken out, that he was tied up to a post, that, that there was this cat of nine tails, this, this fancy whip with all these sharp metal bones, and sorry, sharp bones and sharp glass in it. And they would take this whip, and I don't want to be too graphic, but they would, they would whip it around him and they would pull off his flesh. And they would do it with his back, with his side, with his legs. And it was so agonizing, so painful, and so hurtful that Christ could not even carry his cross to the place where he would be sacrificed because he was too weak. When we, today we've been talking a lot about testing, how, how God tests us. And when God tests us, he's not testing so that, he might, so that we might prove something to him, but so that we might prove something to ourselves. That we might see that God is at work in our lives that God has been transforming our lives. And so if you're here today and you say, you know what, I think I'm a Christian, but I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian. How do I know? Here is the test. Do you respond to Christ as Jim responded to Tom? Do you look at this great theological term, penal substitutionary atonement, and not only intellectually assent to it, not intellectually say, yes, I believe that's true, but does it transform your heart so that you say to your Savior, I love you till I die. Thank you for taking my licking for me. I'll love you forever. Christ's penal substitutionary atonement is just not something that's to be intellectually had, but it's something that is to transform your heart and transform your lives. It is a reality that demands that you surrender all of your life for Christ 
because it means that Christ has surrendered all of his life for you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this doctrine. Not because it's just clever, not because it's, it expands our heads, but God, it swells our hearts. Christ, as you were going to the cross, as you were going to pay the penalty for our sin, you did it for us. You thought of us. You knew that you were taking the blunt of our sin, that you were taking the penalty for our sin. You were a substitute for us. You didn't have to be. We don't deserve it. We are guilty. And yet you loved us so much that you came to atone for our sin. We praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen.